What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit RG hyphen help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We have a loaded pod view. So I have been fascinated by the Red Sox president of baseball operations search. So we're going to chat with Chris Cotillo from Mass Live about this. And in my conversation with Cotillo, and we love having Cotillo on the pod. He's awesome. He's dialed in. He's got a lot of good information, a lot of good ideas. But I came to a conclusion during my conversation with Cotillo of who I want the Red Sox to hire. So we'll get into that in a little bit. And also Chris Brown who is the play-by-play broadcaster for the Buffalo Bills, will join us. We'll preview the Patriots and the Bills game. I don't have much optimism for this game. And there is one thing the Bills have not done well this season. We'll see if the Patriots can take advantage of that. I'll ask Chris if he thinks they can. I'm not looking forward to watching this game. It feels like this is going to be a one-sided affair. Although it's good if the Patriots lose because we want them to tank. We want them to have a good pick. I just don't think that Sunday is going to be a very entertaining game. So you'll hear from Gatillo, and then you'll hear from Chris Brown coming up here on the pod. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Mass Live in the Fenway Rundown, it is Chris Gatillo. Chris, it felt like for a little while there, we had no news about the Red Sox job in terms of who's going to replace Bloom. Now it's crazy, man. Like the, we hear new names every day. It's wild that all these candidates are now out there. Obviously, this is a hire they have to get correct, but all of a sudden, it's like everything was opened up, and now we're getting a million names after hearing nothing for weeks. Yeah, the dam broke, I think. Um, you know, we've been digging at Mass Live for the last couple of weeks, trying to figure out who was in, who was out, all that type of stuff. And, um, you know, baseball is a game where everybody knows each other. And, you know, if even if the Red Sox weren't necessarily going to announce who's been in the interview room, there have been, you know, a lot of people that have been privy to kind of the conversations or asking for permission or all those types of things. So, um, you know, I think it started with a lot more no's than yeses to go interview. I think the Red Sox kind of figured that out over the last uh, couple of weeks. And uh, now they're kind of whittling down that candidate pool. All right, Chris. Well, before we get into specifics, James Click took his name out after meeting with Red Sox ownership. 
Brandon Gomes took his name out. Sam Fold took his name out. Derek Falvey, who runs the Twins, took his name out. John Daniels took his name out. It was reported that Mike Hill isn't interested. Internally, Raquel Ferreira wants to stay in her current role, and she cited family reasons. But Sam Fold works for Dave Dombrowski, okay, who was fired 10 months after he won the World Series. And then you think about a guy like James Click. He was discovered by Heim Bloom when he was with Baseball Perspectives. So my point with all this is how much of this is people are concerned about family reasons or how much is this people are worried about working for the Red Sox? I mean, I don't think it's ended well for really the last three people who have had it. You know, Tarrington uh, doing a fine job, I think, and, you know, have having won that World Series and having Dombrowski come in and replace him. Dombrowski has gone on the record about how he was angry the way things ended and that he's not spoken to John Henry since. Those two guys have a long history dating back to the Florida days, all that. And things with Heim Bloom, I think, you know, people around baseball were shocked to see him fired and didn't think he deserved it about a month ago when it happened. So if you're Sam Fold and you are a new executive or a younger executive and your mentor and your boss is Dave Dombrowski, you're probably going to go up to him and say, so the Red Sox want to call. I know you were just there a couple of years ago. What do you think? And Dave Dombrowski is probably going to tell him it's a disaster, you know, and that's probably <laughs> yeah. what the conversations are. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know that for sure, but that uh, James Click or Brandon Gomes or Sam Fold, three guys with raised ties asking Heim Bloom. Um, you know, as I wrote the other day, before we knew that Click pulled himself out of consideration, they're very close friends. Click could call Heim up and hear everything that was going to be in play with this job, even the stuff the Red Sox weren't telling him. And Click just got fired from a situation in Houston where he had a meddling manager and an incompetent ownership. You know, why would he want to come back and, and deal with that again with a very powerful Alex Cora and um, an ownership group that clearly um, is tough to work for if you only get, you know, three, four years in a job. So, um, you know, I think there are cases like John Daniels, Raquel Ferreira, where, you know, they look at it and that's really, you know, the family reasons are, are real. There's others where it's just, you know, it's not worth kind of the stress you get you know the glory is not worth um kind of the downside of it in the minds of many candidates now they're gonna hire somebody you know they are going to hire somebody they have you know probably in, done interviews with six seven people to this point um so you know we're gonna look at it at the end of the day and you know let's say they hire craig breslow and an experienced executive i'm sure we'll get to those possibilities now people are gonna say see you said nobody was interested but you know, look, look at who they hired. I mean, I, you can't look at it and think that, you know, these were whoever they end up with was their top choice at the start of this process. We heard right. fold. We heard Gomes. Obviously, click is a guy who won a World Series a year ago. Um, you know, Mike Hill was a guy they were very interested in before being told no. Falvey, again, you know, a local guy who's done well with the twins. I mean, to me, it's not surprising that they got declined by guys who are in um the top or at the top of baseball operations departments around baseball mike hazen in arizona Derek falvey in minnesota like or chris Annetti in, in cleveland you know they have their own departments they're comfortable it's rare to see a top executive go from one place to another you know you don't really see that um that often to me the fact that you have number twos these young guys that have never gotten a chance fold gomes those types um saying no is it really says a lot about you know where the red Sox are and what the industry perception of them is and that's not a knock on anybody who's interested in the job um you know maybe those people are less risk averse and then um 
or whatever it is. But uh, it's been, I think, hopefully for them, a wake up call of, you know, people don't look at it and say you're the Red Sox and you have all the money in the world and you've won four titles and you have a good core. People look at it and say there are good parts of this, but it's also a cluster in a lot of situ- in a lot of ways. And uh, I think the last few um, baseball chiefs they've had and the way it's gone with them have proved that. Yeah, and it's a great point on the guys that aren't the main guy in their organization right now. Like you mentioned Gomes, and to me, when this job first opened up and we started hearing, okay, who are some of the names? Gomes makes a lot of sense because he comes from one of the best organizations in the sport, and Mm -hmm. they've done a great job developing homegrown guys and homegrown pitchers, but they've also been really good when they have to go out and make a trade, like for Mookie Betts, like for Max Scherzer, like for Trey Turner when they had the injury to Corey Seager. They've done it both ways, right? When they have to sign a first baseman, they go out there and they get Freddie Freeman. So he's been good at the homegrown stuff where that organization has, but also getting out there externally and bringing guys in. But out of those other guys that have sort of passed on interviews, James Click, of course, Sam Fold, is there anybody that you look at from that group where you said, okay, this would have been a slam dunk hire, or at least it would have been well-received by most people across the sport? Is there anybody that is eliminated themselves from consideration that you say, okay, that would have been the guy. I think that, and I've thought this from the beginning, um, considering the issues that they have had in, in the past couple years, and I like Time Bloom a lot. I thought he should have gotten another year. I saw the plan coming together, and I think he kind of gets screwed at the end, my personal opinion. Um, the knock on him was a lack of decisiveness and just kind of some nerves about you know being in that big chair and not wanting to screw up. They needed somebody who has been, and they still do need, I think, somebody who has had a GM job before and somebody with experience um, and somebody with kind of long-term success. So at the, And the second part of that being somebody who is not in the family, uh, which they got right with Bloom. He's not somebody that had you know Red Sox ties before. Um, I thought they need to go after a candidate that, you know, whether um, they'd never played in Boston or worked in Boston, somebody who could come in with a fresh outlook on everything and say, all right, you know, this is a very weird insulated situation where you have like three assistant GMs who have been here for 20, 25 years. You have a manager who has all the power, a potentially meddling at times ownership group, all that type of stuff. So fresh eyes and somebody who's done it before. In that sense, John Daniels, you know, I know he took himself out of it for family reasons and legitimate family reasons, I thought made a lot of sense. Um, I think James Click, uh, despite the uh, Heimblum ties, which ended up really hurting the Red Sox, I think, in this situation, I think he made a lot of sense. Same type of situation. A guy who, you know, it's not a guy who grew up in Tampa and was coming from being a number two. It's a guy who grew up in Tampa, won a World Series as a number one and was going to come in with you know, fresh set of eyes, all that, and, and they've done it before. You look at the current group of people who are, you know, interested. Neil Huntington, I think, is the one guy who has previous experience running a department. To me, he didn't really do much at Pittsburgh, whether that's just, you know, can anybody do anything at Pittsburgh or, or whatever. Um, but to me, a guy like Daniels or Sabian or some of these people who have had success before, you know, Dayton Moore, I don't think is a, is a culture fit, um, but a guy like that who's gone and won a World Series elsewhere um, it, or just has that experience of not going to be, you know, phased. Again, like Haim, I think that the biggest knock on him was push comes to shove. His default was going to be, let's stay, take a step back. Let's stand pat. We've talked about that before. They need somebody whose default is, all right, we have a pretty good core here. We need to push him over the edge. 
they need Dave Dombrowski, you know? They need a Dave yeah, Dombrowski. Ironically. Uh, <laughs> like, like, that's what they need right now. I don't think he's going to take the job. Um, but it's just, uh, that's the type they need. Um, so I was always kind of in, uh, of the mind that, like, a Sam Folder or Brandon Gomes would be, like, doing the exact same thing they had done before. Um, and even worse, if they went and found somebody who was a number two somewhere um, and was still you know, in the family, a person who had worked here before and come back or whatever it was. But, um, you know, again, I don't think the process has gone the way they wanted to. So they're going to have to pick from what is on the table for them. They can't force these people to accept the job or even interview. And I think they're finding that out. Yeah. And just a side note on that, as as you mentioned, that they need Dave Dombrowski right now, the guy that can put them over the top with now that the farm system is in a really good position again. How embarrassed do you think the ownership group is right now seeing what Dave has done in two years where now we're recording on Tuesday morning, by, or excuse me, Thursday morning, by the time that this airs, <laughs> the Phillies could be one win away from the World Series, already two wins away from the World Series. Last year, he went to the World Series. And I mean, we had the whole Mookie Betts experience this year at Fenway where he came back at seven hits in three games. But on top of that, now the executive they moved on from is he's already taken four teams to the World Series, first guy to ever do that. He could be the first guy ever to win a World Series with three different teams. And they moved on from him 10 months after he won the World Series. Like, how much, how embarrassed do you think they are that they decided to do that? Yeah, I mean, as much as I think Dave Dombrowski is extremely good as at what he does, and that's putting these teams over the top, I don't think he would have as deftly handled this transition period, which they needed to do because of the moves they made largely, you know, under his watch as Heim Bloom did. He's not a farm system building type guy. It would have been, you know, tough for him to kind of go through that process in 1920, um, the off season after 1920 and 21 and all that type of stuff. So I think that, you know, looking back, it did make sense knowing the period they needed to do, enter. You know, I think they basically told him, we need you to get under the luxury tax. And he said, well, I don't want to do that. That's not how I operate. You know, at that point, you know, is it the right call? Um, that can be debated all day long and was and has been over the last four years. But if a guy's not going to play ball and he's not the right fit to see that process through, I do get it. I do think Dave Dombrowski, and I think people around here are starting to appreciate this more as time goes on, is super underrated. Um for what he did in Boston, his tenure, all that type of stuff. You know, people like Dombrowski ruined the farm system. Not really. Okay. Like you look at the people that he traded, um, you know, people get really caught up on that Travis Shaw, Tyler Thornburg trade. Yes. Tyler Thornburg was terrible. Travis Shaw was good for like a year in Milwaukee. He's already yeah. retired. The guy that he actually traded, uh, Mauricio Dubon, who's you know, playing for the Astros now. He's actually uh, the good piece of that trade just people have stopped bitching about it. So now we are at a point where people forget that he was even in it. But if you look at some of the other moves he made and didn't make, he held on to Devers, Benintendi, who was a you know good player, obviously, uh, for a while. I think he's also now and has been the last couple of years wildly overrated. Um, Moncada is not a world beater. Michael Kopech, same type of thing. The guys you gave up for sale, they got a World Series out of sale. Should he have extended sale? No. Uh, that extension he gave to Bogarts was an excellent deal, $20 million a year. That's about the right price for Bogarts, even at that stage. I know he opted out and moved on. Not Dombrowski's fault. Um, and you look at some of the guys that entered the organization under his watch, and people forget, you know, Bayo and Casas and some of these guys, yeah. Duran, are Dombrowski guys. 
credit Bloom and that staff for the development and getting these guys to the point where they're at now. But, you know, Dombrowski had a really good tenure here, separate, I think, of the World Series. There was a lot of really good things that he did. I think fans turned on him because they look at it. So you left the farm system in shambles. Well, appreciate the ring and, you know, the greatest season in the history of the franchise and two other really close runs the two years before that and a a good team that just kind of ran out of gas in 19. So um, I think that, you know, maybe there's a shelf life on Dave Dombrowski, maybe two years from now or a year from now in Philly, they'll be in shambles and he'll walk away. But in my mind, a hall of fame executive, a guy that um, always something stuck out to me, you know, he did an interview with Bob Nightingale. I think they're pretty tight Um, toward the end of his tenure in Boston. When there was rumors of him being on the hot seat and, um, he said to Nightingale, you know, I thought I thought the point of this all was to win, like just kind of <laughs> like b- beside himself. Like, I thought it was to win division titles and get to the World Series. Like, why do we care about farm system rankings in today's game? Um, I think that has a shelf life, but it is the way to approach it. And for a guy who's in his mid 60s, he's had success doing it now in four different places. Um, who knows if he'll get a fifth? I don't think it'll be here, as I said, but um a Hall of Famer, in my opinion, I, I do kind of get the decision looking back. I do think the Red Sox are at risk, though, of I'm Bloom going somewhere else, seeing his vision through and building kind of one of those next, you know, contender, like perennial contenders. If he's, you know, kind of goes somewhere else, learns from the lessons that he took from here where, all right, I can't be indecisive. I have to make these big decisions. Clearly, he can build up a farm system. He adds from to the top with a couple of moves and, and becomes a great you know, executive in the second spot, that wouldn't shock me at all. I think the Red Sox should be wary of that. Yeah, and we'll never know exactly what Bloom was told, right? Because if it's me and I'm sort of, for lack of a better term, GMing for my job, I would have been more aggressive. But maybe he was told that, hey, no, we're good. You're going to be back. Maybe he does go after a rental pitcher at the deadline if he feels like, hey, I really have to get mm-hmm. into the playoffs. And maybe Jordan Montgomery is on the Red Sox if that's the case. I mean, these are all hypotheticals, but... That's where I'm sort of, if I'm a candidate here, I got to know what they want. Hey, do you guys want me to go all in and try to win right now? Or are we doing the long-term sustainability? It just feels like there has to be some direction from the ownership group. And getting back to the point on Dave, it's a great point you mentioned because he was, maybe he didn't build up the farm system. Without question, he didn't build it up. But the whole gutting thing, it's just the misconception. He was actually really good at identifying the guys he could trade. To your point, he said, no, you can't have Rafi in the sale trade. And when you look at, say, the Kimbrel trade, the main piece was like Manuel Margot. Think about getting a guy they wanted a right-handed compliment to Mitch Moreland at the deadline. And he said, OK, we want this Steve Pierce guy. They give up Santiago Espinal. He was really good at doing stuff along those lines. But in terms of now we're hearing some of the names out there, Craig Breslow. So we all remember him from the 13 World Series. Now, Patrick Mooney from The Athletic reported that the Red Sox were in advanced talks. Your colleague, Sean McAdam, reported that may be premature, and it is even even set in stone if he would get the top job. But even a number two job with the Red Sox, McAdam points out, would be a promotion because he's the number three guy in Chicago behind our old buddy Jed Hoyer and Carter Hawkins. So McAdam pointed out that he even worked remotely at times this past season for the Cubs. He was working in Newton, and he's working for the Chicago Cubs. So I wonder, is this one of these things, and this is just me speculating here, where they had talked to Breslow, they're impressed by Breslow, he has this great reputation across the sport in terms of pitching, and they said, hey, we really need him. 
we and maybe we can't sell this as the head decision maker, but we want him in the building in some capacity. Do you think this is the more likely scenario that they have somebody work on top of Breslow? You know, there the the structure seems uh, still up in the air. You know, and I talked to Sean last night, McAdam, about kind of what he was hearing, and I don't think that like the announcement that Craig Breslow's the number one guy in Boston is imminent by any means, or even. Um, you know, as Sean wrote, I think they're not done with the interview process. Um, right. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they hired two people, you know, whether that be, you know, Eddie Romero is the president of baseball operations and Breslow is the GM or vice versa. Who knows? Right. Like they could really do anything here or they do Breslow as the president of baseball operations and Neil Huntington or one of these established people as the GM. Um you know, I think that, as I said before, the way they looked at it, you know, was Heimblum with the inexperience. There was nobody in that front office who had experience in the top chair the entire mm-hmm. time Heim was here. And I think they look at that as a flaw. Um, and and I think it was, you know, we talked about the indecision at the deadline and other times, like um, if you had a veteran GM, a sounding board, you know, instead it was, you know, all the lieutenants and even Brian O'Halloran in an elevated role over the last few years is still a guy who'd been an assistant really for the last 20 years in Boston, along with Romero and Ferreira and all these people. The only pe- person Bloom ever brought in was Mike Group and an assistant GM, never been an experienced GM. I just, I, I know Breslow is super, super, super um, well regarded around the game. I think a perceived issue at times is disconnect between front office and clubhouse. There's always that in today's game, especially with younger executives. I thought that was overblown with time. I think especially on talk radio around here, he was painted as this clone or this nerd who could not communicate. I thought that was always ridiculous. He was a player's GM around the clubhouse, hanging out, a very personable guy. But players are going to respect somebody who's done it before in terms of being in uniform, you know, and to have Craig Breslow, a guy that, you know, won a World Series in a Red Sox uniform, I think goes over well with the clubhouse. Alex Cora, I think, played with him briefly. It makes a lot of sense that he comes in some capacity. Um, will that be the number one spot? Uh, I think it's a little premature to say, um, but it just seems like, you know, talk about all these people not wanting to uproot their families. Uh, he lives in Newton and he's been doing that the whole time. So I think that, um, that obviously is, is an easy sell. Um, and no matter how they do it, as Sean wrote, it's a promotion. And, uh, I do think, you know, it seems like more likely than not that he ends up in the organization in some capacity, just not sure how the exact power structure is going to be. Yeah, it's interesting because it's a great point where he can be somebody that was a former player, so he can wear that hat, but also he is like deep into the analytics. If you ever watch some of these videos when he's talking about pitching, and he gets a lot of credit for some of these Cubs pitchers that have improved. Like Justin Steele's one of the had one of the best seasons in Major League Baseball. And mm-hmm. then the other guy, Kyle Hendricks, coming back from an injury this past season, his hard hit rate went from the 42nd percentile up to the 92nd percentile and basically changed up his usage. The change up he started throwing 41 percent of the time compared to 30.7 the prior season so i'm sure they look at all this stuff and feel like okay this is a guy that could certainly help us but i'm with you to have him be the head decision maker when he's never really been involved in making trades or anything along those lines it seems like that's a little bit too much for me where that seems like such a jump now the other guy that you mentioned there is neil huntington this one to me, and you mentioned briefly mentioned it earlier, where I, I don't really know what it is that would be appealing about him. I, I look at some of the moves that he made. You think about the Garrett Cole trade was bad. And also, worse than that, was the Chris Archer trade. 
He traded for Chris Archer, Tyler Glasnow, Austin Meadows, and Shane Baz. And then the Garrett Cole trade, essentially, they got nothing back for him. And I get it. Like, well, they were, I think I think Tar Heel Colin Moran was in that trade, so watch out. Call, oh, yeah, sorry. Colin yeah, Moran. Right. Well, you know what Tar Heel I do like, by the way, is Drake May. That kid's in I want the Patriots to get him. Yeah, that's, that's my area of expertise now. So if you really want to do a, a full pod, I'm happy to talk about Drake May being the best player in the history of college football at any time. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about the Patriots getting a new quarterback after watching this Mac Jones situation. But yeah, just on Huntington, doesn't really. I know they want they had three years where they made it to the playoffs. Whatever they ended up losing a couple of those like wild card one game elimination things. But I don't really have interest in Huntington, and I don't think any other team across the sport has been interested in Huntington lately. So I don't really understand why he's. Maybe it's the local ties. I don't understand why he's on the radar here. I think it's just the experience factor. You know what I mean? Like just a guy who has done it over the course of time. You know, he was in Pittsburgh forever, and I think that's not very, not a very, um, you know, high stress job because ownership's not very invested. If you get to a wild card series or a wild card game, great. You've kind of hit the ceiling with them. Um, I think it'd obviously be different here. I think that that's a guy like that makes sense if you hire a Breslow or you hire one of these guys that has never, you know, done it before, where. You just have a guy that has sat in the chair and made decisions, maybe the wrong decisions in the case of the Archer trade, the cold trade, whatever it was, but, um, you know, that experienced executive. And I think that's what they've looked for. You know, they've obviously tried to talk to some of these people who have done it before, whether it be Daniels or Hill or Click um, or whoever, uh, and they're not really getting yeses to talk to a lot of those people. Um, You know, Huntington is a guy that that's the big thing is I think, you know, 10, 12 years of just being in the big chair, that's experience that you can't replicate elsewhere. And I think for one of these two jobs, I, I do think that they, if I don't know if they want to, but I think they should bring in somebody who has done it. And um, to make him your president of baseball operations and ha- give him full 100% say uh, would be, I think, a little bit weird because I don't think he has the resume to, to do that. Um, yeah. But uh, to have that one and two structure where maybe him and Breslow um, – you know, I think is interesting, and, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but I think Thad Levine is another interesting guy that's definitely on their radar, too. Well, yeah, I wanted to get to Levine, but it does make sense in terms of, now, I don't want Huntington at all, but that structure just where it's like, okay, we're not ready to give Breslow the job yet, but maybe if we have somebody in here for a couple of years, an older guy that won't be wanting to stay here forever, could retire, and Breslow can take over, maybe that's part of the calculus with this, too. But you mentioned Thad Levine, so obviously... Derek Falvey's the head guy there in Minnesota. And some of the moves, like, I thought they won the Lopez deal, the Pablo Lopez trade, where they make that trade and they send away Luis Arise. Everybody gets caught up, but he was basically mm-hmm. a win more valuable in terms of war this season. Like, Pablo Lopez is a really good pitcher for the Twins this season. He was really, I mean, I don't want to say one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball, but he was definitely a top end of the rotation guy that was really good for them. I wasn't crazy about the Correa deal that they made there, and just because of all the injuries and whatnot, I certainly wasn't crazy about the Vasquez deal. But in terms of their farm system, MLB has a mid-middle-of-the-pack 17th, Fangraphs has them 15th. But the thing that sticks out to me about Levine, and I think this is what would be appealing to the Red Sox, is the analytics, right? They're very analytically based. You look at their offense, fourth in walk rate, fifth in isolated power, third in home run. So we're talking about the three true outcomes there. And they're first in strikeout rate from a pitching perspective. So clearly, they like a lot of the stuff that Minnesota's doing. That's why they were first interested in Falvey, and we heard he wasn't interested. They go to the guy that's mm-hmm. second in command 
in Thad Levine. Now, of course, he's never been the head guy, but I think this is, they just like the way twins do business. Is that sort of what you read from this situation? Yeah, for sure. And we remember, you know, Falvey was a target four years ago when they went and hired Bloom. Like, there's always kind of this idea that, well, from the beginning, this is what the Red Sox say. From the beginning, we wanted Heim Bloom as the only guy we interviewed. Well, he's the only guy you interviewed because you called Mike Hazen, Derek Falvey, probably forced in Oakland and Antonetti and all these top guys, and they were all saying no. So Bloom was the one that, you know, agreed to the interview and ended up getting the job. I think the way Minnesota works, the way that, you know, they've operated, it's a pretty um, collaborative front office where it's Falvey and Levine who have worked together. You know, I think in technical terms, Falvey's the number one, Levine's the number two. But they are, according to you know many people who you know cover them and, and work around them, it's a, a very much a you know one A and one B structure, which helps. I know in technical terms, he doesn't have the experience, but he's a guy that's interested. You know, the interesting thing there is, does he want to come? You know, he's interviewed, which as we saw with Click, doesn't mean he would take it if offered. Um, but he's an interesting name as well, and one that the Red Sox are definitely in on. Um, you know, where, again, doesn't have that experience, but has a good re- relationship with a lot of people around the game and a pretty good reputation. And I bet that he would want Breslow, where he's like, oh, this guy, this guy loves pitching analytics. Bring him on. This right. guy's going to be my number two. I'm sure he'd love that. Another name that we haven't heard connected to the Red Sox yet is Kim Ang, of course, who was, I don't want to say let go by the Marlins. She decided not to go back, but there's more to the story because they were right. going to hire somebody overhead. So she decided not to pick up the mutual Even- option. Even when the Marlins are going good, they still screw it up somehow. I know. It really is unbelievable. Yeah. Now, it was a mixed bag. Like I mentioned the the Pablo Lopez trade. So he was fifth in strikeout rate this season. Now, the Marlins had a ton of pitching, so they didn't need it. But Arise was basically, he's hovering around 400. He ends up leading the league with a 354 batting average, but just 10 home runs. So he was 50th in war compared to Pablo Lopez, who was 10th in war for starting pitchers. So that's why I like the Twins idea here, because they clearly mm-hmm. won that deal, even though, like, Arise was a story in Major League Baseball. See, the guy hit 10 home runs, and from an, an analytical base, he was not nearly as valuable as Pablo right. Lopez. But obviously, she made some really good moves there, too. Like, they got Josh Bell. Now, Gene Segura, that did not work out. Everybody's going to have hits and misses. They also added Jake Berger at the deadline. He hit 303 with nine home runs. They did sign Solaire. The first year was a mess, but then hit 36 bombs. The Cueto thing, of course, that was a mess, but they did trade for Jesus Lazardo when he was young, and he just finished up a nasty 25-year-old season. Strikeout rate was seventh best in Major League Baseball, and unfortunately for them, Sandy Alcantara was basically injured, needed to have surgery, and Tommy John and all that after winning the Cy Young. But in terms of her sort of profile here, that would be somebody that's done it before. And another person that if they want to bring in Breslow, they could have Breslow work underneath Aang in terms of her being the head decision maker, if you will. But has there been any, have you heard any connection with her so far? Because like, obviously her name was out there once she was, she moved on from the Marlins, but I haven't heard anything like tangible connecting her to the Red Sox. Yeah, I heard a very unconfirmed theory from somebody in the game that she might take a year off and not work in a head job. In that case, that would obviously rule her out. Um, some of these, um, I, I don't think she's being paid by the Marlins next year if she declined her end of the option, but some of those things get complicated, so I don't know. I do know that her reputation is stellar um, and fantastic. I think a complicating factor here, she's from Queens, has experience very recently, obviously, in the National League East, and I bet she's of interest to the Mets for their GM job under 
David Stearns, obviously Billy Epler left, uh, I would say, in a little bit of disgrace. Not that he did anything that wrong, but he manipulated the injured list, which is not allowed, and he's under investigation for that. I think the Red Sox will try to talk to Ang. Um, you know, as you talked about that Sean McAdam article we had this morning, Sean said they are waiting to hear back from a couple of people. I wouldn't be surprised if she's on that list. Um, you know, Sterling reputation uh, has worked in big markets, has a relationship from Alex Cora. She was with the Dodgers during the early parts of his career. We know he's somebody that always talks to the front office and is involved in the business of baseball. So, you know, definitely worth making a call, um, you know, if not just to kind of see where she stands because, you know, the resume is as good as anybody in the game. And, um, you know, that's that's candidates like that or, you know, other kind of possibilities are why I think it's impossible to think they're on the finish line here. I could be wrong. The Red Sox pull surprises. But, like, unless you know she's not coming and you have, you know, really exhausted every option, I, I think that they're probably, you know, they wanted a robust, long process. And, you know, it's only been four weeks. So, um, I would be, again, surprised if they didn't make a call, but I don't know exactly where it stands. Yeah, and it's a good point, too, on the core connection, because obviously he has a lot of power with the organization, and having that relationship going back to the early 2000s would obviously be beneficial, and she is very aggressive. Even though I said mm-hmm. I didn't like some of the trades she made, she is very aggressive. She will make a lot of moves, unlike Heim Bloom, and like I said, I don't know if that's all Heim Bloom was told not to make, was something along those lines, but you get my point. It's like she is sort of the opposite of Heim Bloom when it comes to she's going to be very proactive. I do wonder, though, like, remember that story trickled out about the Marlins were pissed off about the Justin Turner thing where the Red Sox didn't trade Justin Turner? I'm wondering if there's any like, hey, so why did because obviously that came from the Marlins side. It didn't behoove the Red Sox to leak that information because Justin Mm -hmm. Turner was still on the team. So I do wonder if when they interview her or if she gets interviewed, if they're like, hey, so why did you guys leak that information? (laughs) Like, we had to deal with this for two days. Yeah, well, that's a that's a problem she'd have with Haim, who she wouldn't be working with. So uh, that true. might that Very might true. be all right. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. So in terms of internal candidates, you mentioned Eddie Romero a bunch, and he's been with the organization forever, Chris. Right? I mean, you got to go back to all the way to two thousand and six. So he has worked for different guys. We're talking about Theo, Ben Sherrington, Dave Dombrowski, Haim Bloom. So he has experience with all different types of general managers, like Dave Dombrowski and. A guy like Heim Bloom could not be any more different, right? Theo's kind of like in between those two guys in terms of how he builds the organization. But how serious of a candidate do you think Eddie Romero is? And is there a possibility, like, I know that he was running stuff after, not that you had to do a whole lot, but after they moved on from Heim. But what do you think if they hire two people, if they hire, say, it's Breslow and Levine, or it's Breslow and Ang, do you think that he would consider, like, moving on if because he's been here forever and it feels like at some point you would want that type of promotion. Yeah. I mean, these people and I, you know, there, there really was four, um, in terms of, uh, Eddie Romero, Raquel Ferreira, Brian O'Halloran and Zach Scott, who were kind of the core of the front office and had been here a very long time. Those four were the transition team when they moved on from Dombrowski to bloom. Zach Scott obviously left for the Mets. He ended up as the acting GM and, and got, uh, let go after, a. A DUI incident, he was found not guilty, but it was too late. Still had lost his job at that point. And he's out of baseball working as a consultant right now. Separate story, but it leaves to three of them who have been here forever. Um, you know, I think that all of them, in Raquel's case, she, I think, is comfortable where she wants to be and, you know, took herself out of the running. And so I don't think she would leave O'Halloran. 
obviously had the option to leave if he wanted to and took a different role. So I expect those people to be around. With Eddie Romero, I think that he's you know a guy who has aspirations of doing it elsewhere. I believe he interviewed with either the Giants or maybe the Pirates a couple of years ago. Wires are getting crossed on that. He's a guy with a, a great reputation, especially in international scouting. Um, bilingual, you know, there's a lot of, a lot to like there. I think his biggest thing here is his very, very close relationship with Alex Cora. Uh, I think that was the big thing where, you know, if Cora has a seat at the table, which um, by all accounts he does, I think that, you know, He's going to push for Eddie Romero to get the job. I do think that there is kind of a dangerous aspect there of the stuff we were talking about earlier. They need change and to have people who, you know, were basically the number two, number three types behind Heim Bloom for the last four years behind Dave Dombrowski before him and Ben Charrington before him and Theo Epstein. Like there's an echo chamber aspect that I think they should try to get away from. These are all very good executives. They're all very, very, you know, um, there's, these people all have four rings, right? They all contributed to that, and I think that that shouldn't be lost. But, you know, the Red Sox need to make significant changes. Sam Kennedy said it over and over and over again. It's not happening at the managerial level, and I think if you if you go from within here, you're just, you know, asking for more of the same. Now, will Eddie be more aggressive than Bloom? I'm guessing, yes, that would be the case. The other thing is, I, I think, and, and Sean's written about this a little bit, is that the people who are kind of those top lieutenants they're kind of, they have the best job security anywhere. Now you're part of it, no matter what, whoever yeah. comes in, that's scared <laughs> off some people as well. You can't bring in your own people. You have, you know, not just Cora, but those people too. And I think that's something the Red Sox, another thing that um, is as a factor where, you know, hey, can I bring my three assistants who I've worked with over time and loved? No, we have those people in place for you. You know, I think that's scaring people off as well. That is funny to think about it that way when you're like, I'm putting together my staff. They're like, Wait, this guy worked for Theo. He worked for Ben Sherrington. He worked for Dave mm-hmm. Dombrowski. He worked for. He survived all these guys, and you still have him within yeah. the organization. It's it's kind of wild. Like normally, people come in and they want their own team around them. So that is something I didn't really think about because a lot of the people within the organization have been here forever. They've just been working for essentially a different mm-hmm. boss. The more and more that we talk this out. I'm really starting to land on because obviously, like I would have liked from the beginning. I said this right when it happened to just. Do anything you possibly can to get Antonetti because of what they've done in Cleveland with the pitching staff. I convinced myself, as I mentioned earlier with you, Brandon Gomes, that would be a great fit. But the more and more I think about it, I am kind of getting sold on the tandem of Breslow and somebody else where you bring Breslow in because he's sharp. And like the Thad Levine thing is really enticing to me just because of the way that they've sort of built that organization. I think that's a way to build it. And I know that the Twins haven't had a ton of success, but really good run differential this year. And they did show a willingness to... At least they wanted to spend, right? The front office, they did, even though I didn't like the Correa deal. They went out and paid Correa. They gave Christian Vasquez way too much money. They've done a really, like the Sonny Gray trade, that was a good trade. Sonny Gray has been really good for them. So I think that that combination is the one that I'm starting to sort of convince myself of more. And I'm with you in terms of getting somebody from outside the organization to sort of take a look at this thing. And if you can bring in two guys where it's like, okay, we get this analytically driven guy that's had some success with a different organization and a guy that's considered to be one of the up and coming minds in major league baseball and front offices and Craig Breslow that to me I mean it's not the easiest sell Thad Levine a lot of people probably hadn't heard of him before this search but that's I would be satisfied with that type of tandem Mm -hmm. yeah and you know I think one piece of on Breslow that I forgot to mention is that 
you know, the Red Sox have been in their minds. They still think of the gold standard as Theo Epstein, which I think is fair because he's like the greatest baseball executive of all time. Of all time. Yeah. It's funny for all the shit the organization gets the last four executives they've had, they have two hall of famers in the mix. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, we think of this unstable craziness and that's there's and two three, of the four. Are all, and three have won a world series. Right. Yes. Um, like that's funny to think about, but I think they're looking for the next Theo Epstein. Craig Breslow obviously played, which Theo doesn't have on his resume, but Theo, I think was the one that identified him as the next great executive brought him into the Cubs or, you know, that whole family there. Um, and I think that that carries some weight too. Um, obviously Theo is not with the Red Sox now, not the one making this decision, but a good friend of Sam Kennedy's. And, um, you know, I think that that all, all plays a role. All right. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in the whole process and I'm glad it's a thorough situation because you have to get this one right. It can't be, Hey, we're firing this guy after three and a half years, whoever you hire yep. this time, you can't do it because then we saw how guys were passing up this time. If you do it again, you're going to be in the same problem next time around. But so I'm I'm convinced myself, as I told you, the tandem. I want Breslow in here in some capacity, not as the head guy, but Breslow and Levine, I'm starting to sort of get sold on that one. Before I let you go, Chris, I wanted to mention, so you had a story up at Mass Live about Trevor's story, and you mentioned that Alex Cora mentioned that he's going to be having an off-season minicamp in Texas for the young infielders. Hell, they need it. And if, if Story can get Raffy there, I'd be all in on that too. Get Raffy there to work on his defense a little bit, but... This is something obviously you want to see because now he's like one of the senior members of the team. And I get he hasn't been here Mm -hmm. forever, but you mentioned he struggled offensively. The strikeout rate career worst at 32.7%. That was 141st out of 151 qualifiers after he got up with the big club. 203 batting average was 144th. He didn't slug at all, 144th in slugging percentage. But obviously this is a guy the Red Sox need to get right. And look, his first two years battled injury this year obviously we found out he was battling an injury last year with the elbow situation got a late start in his first year in terms of he signed late and then the birth of his child so he had to leave spring training when it comes to that but what was your biggest takeaway from this story because it feels like to me no pun intended they need him to play elite level defense which he did that he played elite level defense when he came back but then secondarily He's never going to hit for average, but can he give you 24 to 26 home runs and just provide some punch in that lineup? I'm optimistic, but what did you take away from your story with story? Again, well, no pun intended. A couple things. Number one, uh, for some reason, fans and like the analysis around the Red Sox in the last couple of years, there's so many reasons they cite for the issues that don't include Trevor's story. You know, like that's... Uh, by all metrics, you know, Heim gave him that deal and it's been a disaster in the first two years. And that's kind of like mentioned as like bullet point number 30 of why the Heim Bloom thing didn't work out. You know, people are very more upset that he didn't go get, you know, Rich Hill at the trade deadline than handing a lot of money to a guy who's been a disaster the last couple of years. For whatever reason, <laughs> story's been very accountable. Yeah, like people just like, oh, he'll be fine, which I agree. I think there is reason for optimism. I think there's a lot of talent there. I think the whole Colorado thing's overblown. Um, but I mean, this guy has not given them anything, especially this year. And, and we've talked about it a lot on our pod, like his offensive performance in 43 games was equal to you, what you Chang gave them when he was a shortstop, you Chang made $800,000 <laughs> this year and Trevor story is making, you know, 25, whatever. I can't do the math right now in my head. Cause I'm a moron, but like, these are 
I just the, the offensive performance was not just oh he's finding his footing. It was forty three games of like as you mentioned with those numbers, absolutely horrendous. Uh, and I, I think that's a huge concern. Um, I, I get the sense that you know when he's comfortable and things are going good, like he can be elite still, uh, especially defense base running. But they need this guy to be good, as you said, next year. And, um, you know, talking to him, he's not running from that. He's a, he's a pretty good conversation and really understands. And, you know, I think it was an interesting quote when Heim was fired. He said there's a shared blame um, with the players, especially a guy Heim paid like that. Mm. Um, he is a big piece of this moving forward. For some reason, a forgotten piece. Red Sox fans complain about everything. They let this guy slide a little bit. Um, and, you know, the sky's the limit. Uh, there's a stat I had late in that story where, that Heim and private conversation and a lot of people, the Red Sox kept citing that they were like, you know, 51 and 40 when he played in, uh, yeah. 2022, you know, like they were elite when he was in the lineup and just everything he added, you know, obviously the record was not the same in his 43 games this year, but, um, they think he's, you know, not your superstar, but if he's your second or third best player, you're usually in a good spot if he's healthy. And the other thing is, you know, as much as they could have maybe seen the elbow thing coming, this is a guy who has been, Really, really durable throughout his career. Um, you know, they signed him not thinking injury would be an issue. Uh, I once tweeted that out, and a guy responded, "Are you kidding me? He only played 59 games in 2020." So uh, that the was the COVID year, the 60 yeah, games, right? He so he he missed one <laughs> instead of you know 163, 103. But as that guy thought, but you know, I I do have optimism, and I think he's got a good attitude, and he's a very hard worker. And as I said, the off as you said, the off season minicamp I think is a good sign as well. Yeah, and you mentioned it like two years ago. He was their best hitter with runners in scoring position. Like all the yeah. numbers were down, and I'm not defending him, but he actually did hit with runners in scoring position. Obviously, he didn't do that this past season, but they're really going to need him to perform. And to your point, I mean, now hope hopefully the elbow is fixed, so you feel optimistic about that going forward. He is a tremendous athlete. Like I don't think there's any reason to think that he would age poorly if the elbow is fixed. It's not like he's had he's in terrific shape. It's not like he's had lower body, lower extremity issues or anything. And he looks just as athletic as he's ever been. So, I'm optimistic, but I was optimistic when he made his return this year. I remember after Remember, I think it was Erod where he had like four hits against Erod or three hits against Erod. I tweeted out like, oh, nine of his first 12 batted balls have been hard hit. His timing's already back. And then it's like, okay, the week yeah, later, I'm like, well, he hasn't had a hit. He hasn't had a hit since that. The, his right. defensive, his defensive numbers in those 43 games were ridiculous, though. Like, yeah. uh, like put him like among the best defenders in the league for the year at shortstop. You know, so that was very encouraging for them. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say before we let you go, Chris, in regards to Heim, whoever inherits this job from a personnel perspective, and look, I complained about a lot of the stuff that Haim did. But one thing that he did do is he did replenish the farm system. And you think about whoever inherits this job. Sure, you're going to have to go out and sign a couple of starting pitchers. But Abreu, like that looks like an absolute steal that people complained about the Christian Vasquez trade. Like I love Abreu, the plate discipline and all that. And you still have a good group of young players on the way up. Like Roman Anthony, People think that he may be better than Meyer. That's how much of like the high praise people have for Roman Anthony. So a couple of years from now, if we see the Red Sox being contenders again, we could see a lot of Himes fingerprints on this where that's where I think it should be more of an encouraging job or more of an enticing job. The ownership group and like we went through earlier with Dombrowski and the early firings, that's part of the reason it's not enticing. But you do have money to spend. You need starting pitchers. The lineup's going to be pretty good and the farm system's good. It should be a good job on paper. So Whoever gets this job and if like 
Three years from now, Roman Anthony's hitting 35, 40 bombs, and Myers playing elite level shortstop, and Abreu looks like a stud. They may have to send Jaime a thank you note. Yeah, I know all that stuff's true, but I think we're underestimating how much of a pain in the ass the day-to-day could be for whoever takes this job with all the factors. You Very know, between, true. Very between true. the manager meddling and you not not knowing what ownership wants and worrying about being stabbed in the back and your shelf life being short like these guys. I mean, like, even I think that speaks to the, the point even greater. Like, yeah, they're in a good spot. The core is there and the farm system's good. And yet people are still saying no. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, <laughs> and they only have themselves to blame for this because yep. of their track record. All right, that is Chris Cotillo from Mass Live, the Fenway Rundown. Chris, thanks so much for the time, man. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of this search, if you will. And enjoy your Tar Heels, man. They beat the shit out of my alma mater a couple weeks ago, Syracuse. But I did enjoy watching Drake May. That's what I convinced myself of watching that game. I did bet against Syracuse in that game, too. So that at least made me weather the storm a little bit. But also the fact like, hey, this guy could be playing for the Patriots next year. That made me excited as well. That would be great. I already, uh, you know, after the fourth week of the season, I bought ACC championship tickets. This might have been a little bit premature, but Whoa. I, I have the flight to Charlotte and everything. So that is... Uh, that's probably a jinx. They're probably going to lose to Campbell or something now that we're uh, at this point, but uh, the <laughs> tickets are bought. All right, Chris. Great stuff, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. The NFL season is going strong, and FanDuel wants to help you enjoy it even more with two great offers. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers get a profit boost every day, so you can boost your winnings even more. A couple of things I like coming up this weekend. I like the Bills to cover the 8.5 against the Patriots, unfortunately. I don't see Mac Jones in that offense keeping up with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs and company, especially considering, as we know, Matthew Judon and Christian Gonzalez lost to injuries. And then I like this. How about this? A three-leg parlay. This is for plus 252. The Browns to beat the Colts in Indy. The Browns, of course, the best defense in the NFL. They just beat the San Francisco 49ers. I like the Seahawks at home against the Arizona Cardinals and Washington on the road against the Giants team that just cannot move the football whatsoever. Now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use and you can bet on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and get into the NFL action with offers you don't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. 21 plus and present in select states. Bet $5 and get a $200 offer. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Daily profit boost token offer. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable profit boost token. Restrictions apply, including token expiration. See terms for both offers at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike, getting ready for the Pats and the Bills coming up on Sunday. Joining us now, the interim play-by-play broadcaster for the Buffalo Bills, it is Chris Brown. Chris, thanks so much for taking some time, man. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah, you're doing a lot better than us Patriots fans are doing right now. We're living (laughs) in a totally different world, Chris, than we lived for 20 years. We're really trying to adjust to this. Like, we're at the point now, hey, should we tank? Are we cheering for the Patriots to win or lose? It's just totally different from what we're used to around here. And you guys have been the kings of the division essentially since Tom left. Yeah, three-time division champs. Going to be a tougher road this year, I think. You know, Miami looks like they're for real, and the Jets are still plucky even without Aaron Rodgers. But yeah, it's it's tough up there in New England for sure. I think this is the first time they've started one in five since like 1995 or something. So it's been a minute. (laughs) 
Yeah, so before we get into specifics with this game and some stuff on the Bills, just on Damian Harris, obviously a lot of us here are big fans of Damian Harris. That was scary last week, a neck and a concussion, a neck injury, I should say, and a concussion. But it seems like all things considered, he got away from that pretty well in terms of no serious injury long term. Yeah, it was described, you know, early this week as a sprained neck and he's in the concussion protocol. I don't anticipate him being ready for the game this week, but yeah, that's probably the best outcome you could have hoped for after watching that play unfold and then watching him get put on a backboard, immobilized and taken away in an ambulance. So we'll, uh, we'll count ourselves lucky on that front for his sake. Yeah, no doubt about it. So the Bills, they have that huge win against Miami a couple of weeks ago. Josh Allen is unreal, 21-25, and 25, the four touchdowns, no interceptions, 320 yards. The thing I was aggravated the most about is that game was at one. I'm thinking to myself, this is the Bills and the Dolphins, two of the best teams in the NFL. Get this thing away from one o'clock because I'm watching that game at one and then I got to watch the Patriots later on. It's kind of unfair to us people that want to watch some good football at this point in time. But anyway, then they have the London game, which is a disappointment and some weird travel stuff with that game as well. And then last week, not that impressive against the Giants, 14-9. to And obviously, there's familiarity there with Brian Dayball being the head coach of the Giants. But I had thought after sort of that Miami game that order was restored. The Bills were the best team in the AFC, or one of the best teams in the AFC, the best team in the division after they beat Miami. And at times, like that Miami game, they look like the best team in the NFL. And then you have the slip up in London. They didn't look impressive against the Giants. So it's tough for me to sort of get a read on this team from the outside. So what team are they? Are they one of the best teams in the NFL? Are they not as good as they were last year? What's your feeling on this team after the first, what, six games of the season or so? Yeah, I mean, I think that what you have to look at is a couple of things here. Number one, coming into the season, most people felt the roster was deeper and more talented than it was the year before. And that was due in part to GM Brandon Bean saying, look, we got absolutely destroyed by injuries last year. And then end of the season, you have the DeMar Hamlin thing on top of it. It was just an endless string of injuries uh, that just seemed to persist each and every week. And so what Brandon Bean did on a budget was decide, I got to fortify this roster depth wise. And he did that. I mean, getting guys like Leonard Floyd in June, Puna Ford in May have proven pretty valuable because Von Miller was not ready at the start of the season. He's still not 100% now. And Leonard Floyd leads the team with six and a half sacks. Then you have Puna Ford, who was a proven starter in Seattle for the last three years. He's not even active on game day because they're so deep at defensive tackle. But then you lose Daquan Jones indefinitely to a torn pec muscle in London on week five. Oh, well, we've got Puna Ford. Let's just plug him in and off we go. And even the rookie third-round pick, Dorian Williams, has been a pleasant surprise replacing Matt Milano, who's probably lost for the year, although they're not completely shutting the door. They've basically lost three all-pro players in the last three weeks, and I think they're still adjusting defensively to that. And then on offense, you know, they've gotten off to some slow starts each of the last two weeks, and they're trying to put their finger on just what is slowing them down, and it's mainly an execution issue because if you go back and you look at the tape, there's receivers running open for Josh to hit. He's just not seeing them for whatever reason. Maybe he's still locked on making the big play instead of just taking the easy yards that defenses are giving him. Uh, and there's been drops. There's been careless play. You know, Gabe Davis against the Giants. He makes that catch. He's running up the field. He doesn't put the ball on his outside arm near the sideline. 
gets punched out and it's a turnover. So it's simple, fundamental things like that. And it's like we say all the time, if you watch this Bills team, the only way teams can usually beat them is if the Bills are helping them. And they've done that in each of their three losses this year. And even when they help you, you can't run away from them because each one of their losses is one, are one-score games. Yeah, and just in terms of Josh Allen, he has 13 touchdowns and one interception in his last four games against the Patriots, basically since the win game, which will be forever remembered here as like the last time the Patriots played competitively against the Bills, and 1,099 yards. So he has ripped up the Patriots. It felt like maybe in 2019, a rivalry was kind of budding between the Pats and the Bills. Remember, they played that great game in Week 16. I believe the final score was like 24 to 17, and you thought, oh, maybe this is something, and then Brady goes to Tampa, and then the Bills sort of take over the division. But at this point, like, did the Bills even look at the Patriots as a rivalry? Because I felt like we had a chance, if Tom finished his career here, where this could have been like a legit back-and-forth rivalry, but really since Tom left, the Patriots had that one glimmer of hope in 2021, but since then, they haven't really been good. I have to imagine now they view sort of like the Dolphins as their rival, right? Like, is this... I heard some comments this week where the Bills, a couple of players in the Bills are talking about like being asked about taking the Patriots lightly. So it doesn't even feel like a normal division game anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think they have a healthy respect. We were just talking to AJ Epinesa on my daily show, One Bills Live, and he was saying, you can just tell there's a different feeling in the building. Like, you know, you guys talk about a 20 year dynasty. You have to remember 17 of those years, the Bills didn't make the playoffs consecutively. So we were living where you're living now, uh, and we did it for 17 years. So, you know, <laughs> you guys complaining to people in Buffalo just doesn't <laughs> wash very well. Um, but I think it, but in all seriousness, I think it goes far deeper than the quarterback. I, I think just from a roster construction standpoint, Brandon Bean has, for the most part, drafted well. He's insulated the roster with proven vet- veteran talent and depth, as I mentioned earlier. And I just think top to bottom, it's probably one of the top five rosters in football, offense, defense, special teams. So you take that and you you put it out on the field every week, even with some key injuries, and they're a pretty tough team to beat. New England, with all due respect, you know their roster probably isn't seen by many as even being in the top two-thirds of the league right now, whether you want to criticize their drafting over the years or criticize their player development once players get there, do they get better? You know, you can pick whatever you want, but the proof is there right now. They just have tough time finding guys to give them plays to help them win games. Yeah, and when a team of the division is willing to give you one of their receivers, and Devontae Parker probably tells you where they're at in terms of what they think of Devontae Parker when he was traded to the Patriots, and he had a huge drop in the game last week, but Speaking on Josh Allen, some of the numbers are just ridiculous. Like you could argue statistically this is his best season. I was his numbers so if you're going to try to get after him, you can't really blitz and the Patriots best pass rusher Matthew Judon is of course right. out and his numbers against the blitz 71% in terms of his completion percentage is third, 8.1 yards per attempt is six, four touchdowns, no picks, a 116.3 rating which is second to only Tua. And then if you look at some of the numbers that Pro Football Focus has, when he has the ball for more than two and a half seconds, he has a 118.7 rating, which is the best in the NFL. And if it's less than two and a half seconds, 82.8% in terms of his completion percentage, that's the second best. Now, the yards per attempt are down, but naturally when he's getting rid of the ball 
less than two and a half seconds, it's going to be that way. So, and you mentioned earlier, like the only way sometimes the teams compete against the Bills is they make their own mistakes. It's almost like with this Patriots matchup specifically, they have to hope that Josh Allen throws him one because I really don't see, unless you can get to Allen with your normal four pass rushers and the Patriots' best pass rusher, as I mentioned, isn't going to be there. Uche is okay. But it really does feel like Josh Allen is sort of, early in his career, you could kind of bait him into some interceptions and, hey, would he be patient enough to beat you down the field right now I just what has given him trouble is it just himself yeah I would say his own competitive nature gets the best of him sometimes I mean I was just watching the tape from last week's game and he's got receivers running wide open underneath and I can see that he's looking downfield to see if he can make a shot play um call that what you want arm arrogance whatever phrase you want to use (laughs) but there is that competitive juice in him that says, oh, you don't think I can make that throw? Watch me. And that's how he got victimized and how they lost in week one to the Jets. He's trying to stick balls in places where most people can't do it, and he's going to show you he can. And he did it to the tune of four turnovers, and they end up losing the game in overtime. So I think that was a good lesson for him in week one to learn again. And he was remarkably efficient from weeks two through four where he accepted the fact he was playing Patrick Mahomes football from 2022. You know, these teams are going to play cover two shells the whole time. Right. They're not going to give you anything cheap or deep. So take what's in front of you and just matriculate the ball down the field and be high, prove you can be highly efficient. And he was that. And that's why his numbers are off the charts. The question is, how sustainable is that to play at such a high level of efficiency? And he came back down to earth. I still thought he played a good game in week five against the Jaguars. It was everybody else that was the problem. And then last week, he kind of joined the party, you know, and they only scored 14 points. I think they got into a little bit of a rhythm late in that game. I know they're hoping to carry that into this week. I love that term, arm arrogance, by the way. You should trademark that. I may have to steal that on the pod once. Or, I, yeah. Mac Jones certainly does not have arm arrogance. I'll tell you that. I mean, he does, yeah. not have, he does not have the arm to have the arrogance to go along with the arm. But his number one weapon, Stephon Diggs, another big season, 49 receptions, third He's third in yards. He's destroyed both man and zone coverage. And going back to Allen, he too has destroyed the Patriots. Last four games, seven for 85 and a touchdown, three for 60 in that blowout playoff game, seven for 92 and a TD, seven for 104 and a TD. And Chris, to me in this game, the thing that is unfortunate from a Patriots perspective, it felt like you finally had a guy that could maybe match up with Diggs, right? Because we saw Christian Gonzalez, the Rookie, he played really well against Tyreek Hill. Like Tyreek Hill's worst game of the season came against the Patriots, and Christian Gonzalez got that matchup most of the time. He was actually really good against the Bills receivers, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith as well. But if you don't really have that one guy that can shut him down, it seems like if you're in a zone, he's going to find the opening. If you're in man, he's going to beat you. So I would imagine pretty much the same coming up on Sunday where Stephon Diggs has a big game. But you, I mean, you see him every week. What makes him so special? Because... I continue to be impressed by these guys that because Diggs is way better than any other weapon on this team. And he's still putting up these crazy numbers when the coverage is going towards him the whole time. So what is it that makes him so good? Uh, I just think he is a rip your heart out kind of competitor. Um, There are no off days for him. He's the juice that keeps the entire team up throughout a football game both on offense, defense, and special teams. I mean, if you just watch him on the sidelines, he's jacking people up all game long to make sure everybody is on the same cutting edge that he lives on every day. Um, And I think that he is committed to his craft. 
He's easily one of the three or four best route runners in football. So I think he is a prime example of you don't need four, three speed to be a successful wide receiver in this league. If you are committed to your craft and your route running and you can read body language and read coverages, you can destroy teams even when they're trying to overcompensate for your playmaking ability. Uh, I will say if there is one thing that the Bills offense would like to do a little bit better is diversify their offense. Now, weeks two through four, they had nine different players touch the football in the passing game, but the targets have been more lopsided in favor of Diggs than they have ever been before with him in a Bills uniform. It's got some people outside observers I'm talking about now concerned about the balance of the attack, but it's really hard to argue with the results. Yeah, it's a good point because I was looking at Dalton Kincaid. They spent a first-round pick on him, and I know when they drafted him, I'm like, oh, geez. Now they get a t- another tight end to go along with Dawson Knox, and I know he missed last week with a concussion. Knox has not had a big se- season. You mentioned Gabe Davis earlier. He's really been their number two guy, 56 yards per game. But to your point, did you think that you'd see more out of the two tight ends than you've seen so far? Um, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, up until last week, which Kincaid missed with, being in the concussion protocol, he was the second most targeted player on the team behind Diggs, and then Davis overtook him last week. Um, so he's been a part of the offense. It's just been a lot of the underneath checkdown type stuff. Fans are already complaining that they're not using Kincaid down the seam enough, and where are the big plays we're supposed to get out of him? And I think the Bills, as a coaching staff philosophy, have, have a habit of bringing rookies along slowly. James Cook, for example, last year was clearly the most talented back on the roster in Buffalo, and yet Devin Singletary got the lion's share of the workload. And look, I like Devin Singletary, but he's just a guy. Like, he's not, there's nothing special physically about his skill set, while James Cook is a potential game breaker, and yet he could not get on the field last year as a rookie. And then all of a sudden, in one, in the span of one offseason, he's your feature back. So there's this, there's this process that they put rookies through here. And look, as far as Kincaid goes, that's considered fa- getting fast-tracked in Buffalo for a rookie <laughs> with all the time that he's had on the field. Um, and I know it sounds funny, but that's just the way they do it here, right, wrong, or indifferent. So I think that you'll see more and more of him as we go on to you know how that all gets incorporated week to week, I think is going to be largely an opponent thing and a matchup thing too. And I, once he got here, I thought Knox was going to become more of a, a touchdown target than a volume target going forward. Yeah. It's interesting because that sort of reminds me of the Patriots run where, especially on the offensive end, the receivers, it was really tough to break those guys in with Brady. So when you have a super deep team like the Bills do, it's kind of a nice luxury to have. But as you said, people probably want to see more of Dalton Kincaid. All right, so the Bills defense, you mentioned some of the injuries. Tredavious White, Matt Milano broke his leg, as you mentioned. And then they did get Vaughn Miller back, as you said, but just, what, two games. Now, overall, their numbers are really good. They're eighth in EPA. They're seventh in passing yards against. They're sixth in passer rating against. Eight interceptions tied for the second most, which really scares me with Mac Jones. But then if you look at the running game, 5.4 yards per attempt, which is 31st, 133.7 yards per game, 25th. The Jags ran for 196. Now, the Patriots have not run the ball much. They haven't had success. Last week, though, they did have 
the highest success rate in the run game in the NFL, yet they only ran the ball 19 times. That's a Bill O'Brien issue. But do you think the Patriots could run the ball against this Bills team, or are they just going to load up the box and say, hey, Mac, try to beat us? No, I think they're going to try. I think they're going to try. They don't really have too many better options. I, I would say with respect to the Bills' run defense, it hasn't been bad. The problem is they've had some big runs leak out probably in four of the six games they played. Hmm. Brees Hall's first two carries went for 82 and like 40-something yards. That's going to skew the average. And then late in the game against the Jaguars, when the defense had to have like 80 plays on the field because their offense couldn't get going, and they didn't have Shaq Lawson and Greg Rousseau, who are probably their best edge run defenders in the defensive front. They're both out injured, and ETN got the corner more than you're used to seeing from this Bills defensive front because of that. And he had some long runs at the end of that game. And then last week, Barkley got out the gate for a few. And that's that's the issue. That's why they're 25th against the run and why the average is so high. Because mm. more often than not, they're pretty solid. I mean, week two against the Raiders, Josh Jacobs had nine carries for minus two yards. They're capable of being a better run-fit defense. But with the addition of rookie Dorian Williams, who flies around the field, and you're going to notice him right away, the problem is he's not always right. So he is still learning on the fly. And so he'll try to scrape under instead of scraping over. And then, bang, somebody's out the backside for 20 yards. And those are some of the issues that have cropped up. Not often, but often enough where it skewed the averages. All right, Chris, and just sort of a big picture question with the Bills. We saw, in, of course, they make the AFC Championship game in 2020. Then in 2021, they have the heartbreaking loss to the Chiefs. And then last year, they lose to the Bengals in the postseason. How much pressure is on this team to get over the hump? Because the Bengals have been to a Super Bowl. We know the Chiefs have won two. The Bills have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Like, Could jobs be on the line this year if they don't get over the hump, if they have a disappointing early loss in the postseason? Um, I don't think so. You know, Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean each signed contract extensions just over a year ago, and they're multi-year extensions. It's not like a one-year extension or a two-year extension. It's like four or five. So I think the ownership here, you know, Terry and Kim Pagula are kind of committed to these two guys who have been in lockstep since they've been here. Um, you know, it's it's a unprecedented level of success since the early 90s Super Bowl teams. So they're not going to mess with that. I think they know that the Bills have been good enough to win the Super Bowl each of the last three years with the quality of the roster that they have. Their biggest problem is playing their best on that day in the playoffs. Um, I'll go to my grave saying what happened against the Bengals was far more than just scheme and the way in which they played that day. Bengals won the game. I'll give them full credit for that in the divisional playoff last year, but this team was not right uh, emotionally. They were so emotionally yeah. damaged and wrecked from the DeMar Hamlin situation that they just had nothing to give on that day, uh, try as they did. So I, I know that sounds like an excuse, and I'm an apologist for the Bills and whatever, but I was here in the building. That stuff was real. Um, their yeah. teammate literally died on the field twice and had to be revived. Um, it messed with a team like I have never seen before. It's amazing they they won the last game at the end of the season against the Patriots, which you, if you remember, the Patriots had the lead 
and then the second kick return went back. If it's not for those two kick returns, Patriots win that yeah. game because that team was riding on E emotionally in that game, let alone the playoff game against the Dolphins the next week against the third-string quarterback. Yeah, it is totally understandable, too. I mean, they went through a massive tragedy. And the other thing I'd say just in terms of the Bills, I don't hate the Bills as, like, a division opponent. I've hated the Jets for years, naturally. I mean, especially when the Rex Ryan thing was going on. I never really hated Miami. They always played the Patriots tough when they were in their heyday. But I'm almost rooting for the Bills to make a run to the Super Bowl because from a Patriots perspective, I don't want the Chiefs to be like the next dynasty in the NFL. I don't want them to win three Super Bowls in five years like the Patriots did. So I'm actually rooting for the Bills. Chris, before we let you go, just sort of a nerdy uniform question. I hate the Patriots uniforms right now. The Pat the Patriot were my favorite. I like the royal blue ones that they wore in the 1990s. I love the Bills 90s ones where they had the red helmet and the royal blue jersey. I hated the ones that Bloodsoe wore, the navy ones. I thought those were bad. I think their uniforms are pretty good. Now, I actually really like their uniforms now. Have they considered doing like the Patriots did the throwback recently? Have they considered going to like the old school 90s ones with the red helmet for yeah, a game or two? It's funny you mention that because there is a, a groundswell of fan support for that. Um, there hasn't been any talk internally about it, to my knowledge. As you know, you got to put those requests in like a year in advance to the league yeah. to get approval for it. Um, it's funny you mention that because my son wants to see those jerseys come back too because, well, he's too young to have seen them the first time, but he thinks they're really cool also and would like to see those come back. I, I am a fan of the white helmet. Um, I don't know what it is. I just think it matches up with the jersey better. I don't hate the red helmets. I just prefer the white ones. And the Bills actually are going to be going with their white stormtrooper look uh, this Sunday against the Patriots, which is a pretty sharp look, too, with the white helmets. Um, just going white pants, white jersey, white socks. So, yeah, I mean, I think eventually they'll get around to it. The question is when. I think if the groundswell of fans calling for it continues, they, they may just buckle and, and go that route. Um, I just don't know when that's going to happen, but hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, I just think of Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and that group of guys that was so fun to watch. But, yeah, we'll see. I mean, that would be nice if they wear those uniforms. It's tough to mess up the colors, right? Like red, white, and blue. I, that's why it's perplexing yeah. to me that they ever went to that Navy uniform, which I thought that was bad luck. Although Bledsoe did beat the Patriots 31 to nothing in those one game. And I think the Patriots, didn't they return the, it wasn't a 31 nothing. They beat them like at the end of the season. It was Last the same game score. of the season. Yeah. That was 2003. Um, yeah. That was a wild bookend type thing, but yeah, don't worry. Everybody hated those Navy blue uh, jerseys that they wore at home and those God awful things with the Navy blue shoulder block pads colors on the shoulders those were just god awful people were like celebrating when they finally got rid of them after about 10 years i always liked the the red patriots jerseys the best those were kind of the ones i grew up watching yeah. and i kind of like those you know with pat snapping the football on the side of the helmet i always kind of preferred those yeah, they were awesome. They brought those back for the Dolphins game this year. They, they were awesome. And then it's like the following week we see their current uniforms. Makes no sense that they transition from those ones. All right, that is Chris Brown, interim play-by-play -play broadcaster for the Bills. Chris, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. And have a great call on Sunday. I'm warning you, you may hear a lot of boos in the stadium. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes we hear those for the wrong reasons uh, when we got Bills fans in the stands doing stupid stuff. But hopefully everybody will behave themselves and – you know, we'll just have a good competitive game. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. Take care.
This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Chris Brown previewing this Patriots-Bills game, which could be a really, really bad afternoon for the Patriots. I feel like I say that a lot. The Saints game was bad. The Cowboys game was bad. And the way they lost to the Raiders was painful. So I don't think it's going to be a great afternoon for us Patriots fans, but great stuff there from Chris Brown. And I will say this, those Bills uniforms in the 90s were awesome. I love them. The Bills have good uniforms now, at least. It's not like they have bad uniforms. The Patriots and I know I continue to bring this up on the pod, but it just irritates me that they wear those ugly uniforms. Actually, you know what? This year, maybe it's justified to have some of the worst uniforms in the NFL. All right, so we got time for a couple of calls. So we'll take two calls and then we'll get to some emails. So 617-396-7172 is that number. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, Joe out of West Virginia. And it's another day closer to the seas starting their season. I see the acquisition of Jeff Van Gundy as a consultant, which is, geez, I'll tell you, that's nice to have. He... He had to get uh, by, like, Michael Jordan when it was, like, Air Jordan. I mean, it was, it was taken off. It was, like, in another stratosphere. And he had Patrick Ewing on the team at the time. And uh, he and Patrick uh, got in some re- a really good series, he and uh, Jordan, so to speak. And uh, Patrick Ewing had a beautiful finger roll right at the hoop. That did kind of KG. Would have always liked to see... You know, Robert Williams III come up with that kind of thing for his repertoire, but he always was, you know, he just kind of would, you know, the pass right underneath the hoop and slam at home. But anyways, I'm I'm hoping that uh, uh, maybe he might uh, put that into uh, Porzingis' repertoire underneath the hoop. You know, that finger roll is a beautiful shot for a big man. Anyways, um, looking forward to the C's getting going because I'm tired of, uh, you know, Dumping on the Pats, it's like it's not even fun anymore. It's like it, it actually bothers me and that I have to be that way. Eliminated on my last man standing has San Francisco, and they got beat. I should have, you know, I, I couldn't 
take my couldn't bring myself to pick the Raiders against the Pats. But anyways, hey, look at uh, always enjoy listening to the pod. <laughs> I appreciate the kind words as always, Joe. So a lot of meat on the bone there. So in terms of the survivor pool stuff. Man, that's a tough loss. San Francisco, you think that's going to be an easy one. And they had a chance to win it if they just kicked the field goal. If they just made the field goal, I should say. You're still alive. I love survivor pools. I'm in one right now. I'm still in one. My strategy, and I think I may have mentioned this in the pod. I can't remember. But my strategy has just been picking against Carolina, and I continue to win. Like, I use the Vikings, and I would never use the Vikings again the rest of the season because they're an inconsistent team. They don't have Justin Jefferson, but survivor pools are a ton of fun. And... It's crazy, like every time, every year I feel like there's a big favorite that goes down and everybody gets screwed over by that. And I've been the beneficiary of that this year. In different years, I haven't been, but I love Survivor Pools. They're a ton of fun. In terms of your Van Gundy point, I don't know if Van Gundy's going to help Kristaps with the finger roll, going back to the George Gervin days, but I love the Van Gundy hiring. I've said it on the pod before, but think about this coaching staff, man. You brought in Sam Cassell, who's considered to be one of the best assistants. You brought in Charles Lee who was the main assistant on the team that won the championship in 2021. This guy is a smart individual, as is Sam Cassell. We've already seen sort of the effect of Sam Cassell on this team, right? Sam Cassell has been working with Jason Tatum. What has Jason Tatum been doing a lot more in the preseason? I was raving about it the other day. They're getting him in the post. Sam Cassell is already, his hiring is already working for the Celtics team. So I love it. And Van Gundy, he's a guy that has been, he's had a, wide range of jobs in the NBA from head coach to assistant coach to being the lead broadcaster for multiple years in the NBA finals, like almost two decades. This guy's seen it all. So if you can get a smart guy like that into your organization, why wouldn't you do it? So I totally love it. I love everything we've seen so far about Porzingis. And I'm totally with you. I'm at the point now where I cannot wait for the Celtics. And we're less than a week away, less than a week away from the Celtics and the Knicks. Like I cannot wait for that. By the way, just a little programming note here. We're going to have a preview early next week, full Celtics preview early in the week. And then Wednesday, of course, we usually record on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But Wednesday, we're going to have a pod after that game because we're going to be breaking down the first game of the season. Cannot wait for that. Cannot wait for the Celtics season. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. It's Dave in North Carolina. Hey, you know, it's getting harder to think of uh, new things to say about this evolving clown show known as the 2023 Pats. But I started reflecting on my 40 years of work experience, including 25 in the military, and it always seems that if we had a consistently high number of people at medical or on sick leave, you know, there was an indication there was a, a morale issue, which usually equals performance issues. So being semi-retired, I said, what the hell? I looked, took a look at the Pat's extensive injury list and compared it against the rest of the league, and uh, here's what I got. 418 players NFL-wide on the injured list in some capacity for a team average of 13.06. Patriots double that with 26 on the injured list. By the way, of the top five teams average 13 injured and the bottom five average 17.8. So we're 50% higher than the worst teams. Um, you know, I'm not calling our injured guys frauds, but what I'm suggesting is if it's a close call, whether you're questionable or doubtful, you're probably okay with being doubtful rather than going back and being part of the clown show. Oh, you know, the other day kind of ties into this Bill O'Brien's remarks <laughs> that this week when he flatly stated he didn't get to choose the quarterback lineup for the Raiders game. You know, he was an out-of-the-box thought for Belichick. If you've got a reputable offensive coordinator, or at least once reputable, with extensive head coaching experience, 
Wouldn't you want to keep them engaged and motivated by letting them choose the game day lineup? Anyways, that's it, Brian. And uh, lastly, I've changed my mind on the Pat's loser ice cream suits uniforms. Keep wearing them. I don't want to stain the memory of our championship era unis by bringing them back now. Anyways, that's all I got. Keep up the great work. Take care. Oh, that's great. I just said that earlier. I'm with you. They should wear the ugly uniforms now. I'm finally okay with the ugly uniforms because they shouldn't be wearing the good uniforms. So I'm with you, man. I totally agree on that. And just to the point about the injury list, if you just go to the Wednesday report, think about this. And look, I'm not saying that these injuries aren't serious, but Trent Brown chest did not practice. Hunter Henry ankle did not practice. Jonathan Jones knee did not practice. Riley Reef knee did not practice. Uche knee foot did not practice. Keon White concussion, obviously he's not going to practice. And then you had David Andrews limited ankle. Barmore knee limited, Cody Davis knee limited, Demario Douglas concussion, so obviously that's a limited participant, Duggar foot limited, Trey Flowers foot limited, totally forgot he was even on the team, Devon Godshot ankle limited, Jack Jones hamstring limited, still hasn't played, Onwenu ankle limited, Jabril Peppers knee limited, Juju concussion limited, Ramondre ankle limited, Cole Strange knee limited, Sean Wade shoulder limited. And I do agree with you, like, there are certain guys that are going to start making business decisions where it's like, yeah, I don't know if I can go. I, I don't know if I can go in this particular game. So I do really, I'm interested to see sort of the morale of this team going forward because it's going to get to a point where if it's me at the trading deadline, and I know Bill doesn't operate this way, I'd be looking to see what I can get. Like now we already saw the Chiefs made a trade to get McCole Hardman back, but Kendrick Bourne, it would appear that the number one receiver on the market is going to be DeAndre Hopkins, right? So But Kendrick Bourne, can he fetch you a fourth-round pick? Can he fetch you a mid-round pick? I believe that he can be a contributor on a winner. And then what about Ramondre? Like, Ramondre has not had a great season. I'd love to keep him around, but are you eventually going to give him a contract? So at that point, we've seen that the running back position has been replaceable. I love Ramondre as a player, but I'm just thinking, what would a contender give up for a guy like Ramondre? Josh Uche is another one that we've talked about. Kyle Duggar, if you're not going to extend him, you might as well trade him. This, you have to acknowledge where you're at right now as an organization. Like when Danny Ainge gets to Utah, trades away the guys, he knows they're not a championship team. He gets all these picks back. We saw it with Oklahoma City before they started sort of revitalizing that organization. I would sort of take an NBA approach with this. You are bad. You are bad. Only one team has been outscored by more points than you on the season. I would just embrace the suck. Acknowledge who you are as an organization stockpile draft picks so the guy who replaces Bill as the head decision maker can actually draft well. I mean, that's what I would do. And I know Bill, he'd be stockpiling picks, which I believe are going to be his for his replacement. But it's in the best interest of the organization to look at the roster and say, hey, is this guy part of the next great Patriots team? Kendrick Bourne's a free agent, so there's no reason to keep the guy around. I love Kendrick Bourne. You know what I've said multiple times about Kendrick Bourne, but he's not going to be part of the next great Patriots team. So what's the point of keeping them around, right? So those are things that this organization has to acknowledge. All right, so if you do want to leave a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172. Let's get to a couple of emails. That's where we bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So do you agree with the take about, it's It's funny, I said it, then we get a call about it. Do you agree with the take that they should keep wearing the shitty uniforms because you know- they suck? That could be a silver lining of the season. It's such a bad taste in everyone's mouth, including crafts, that they decided they could do away with them. That, I could see that happening. So, yeah, if that's what it takes, I'm down. Yeah, I mean, 
it's they're suited well right now to wear those uniforms right. and continue to lose games. It's like the bad high school team that has bad uniforms too. <laughs> yeah. I liked your take about the the Bills uniforms too. Those are definitely solid, those red helmets. But I liked also, you know the ones they wore with just the, the buffalo on the side? It was like an orange, red. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I wonder if they'll pull those out on Sunday. He said they're going with the all-white, so they might have those. We'll see what happens. Yeah, they're going to look even faster in the all-whites too. That's true. Going to be look. It's going to look like the Patriots are like. It's the SEC against like some team from the Sun Belt. That's what it's going to look like <laughs> on Sunday. I'm glad we can. Yeah. I'm glad that now we have yeah. like Gallus, the Bruins yeah. and the Celtics back in our lives, and we have this this GM search. I continue to be enamored by this GM search. So I'm happy that we have this stuff going on because at least we have other things to talk about. But hey, let's get to a couple of emails mm-hmm. here, Jamie. What do you got? Um, this is about the GM search. This is from Adam in Hamilton, Virginia. Adam writes, hey, Brian, maybe the signs are all pointing to this. The Red Sox will promote Eddie Romero to GM. And when they announce it, they will also announce that manager Alex Cora is the new president of baseball operations. Still the manager too, but now officially at the top of the organizational chart. Uh, it would admit what is already obvious that Alex Cora is the boss. It also paves the way for Cora to join the front office full time in a few years. When that time comes, he can just hand over managerial duties to someone like Veritech and move his stuff upstairs. What do you think of that? All right. It's an interesting idea. I just don't think Cora wants to do that right now, right? Cora eventually is going to be a GM. He has said publicly that he eventually wants to have Mm -hmm. that type of position, but I don't think at this particular point in time that he wants to do that. He said his best sort of thing for the organization right now is to manage the team. So I think eventually that will happen where Cora runs an organization, whether it's the Red Sox or somewhere else. But to the point, that's why it is very important to get this higher right because Alex Cora is entering the final year of his contract. And Cora is a guy that clearly wants to be managing in the playoffs where he Mm -hmm. thrives. We saw him outmanage Kevin Cash going back to 18. They had the great run in 18. So he wants to get back there. Corey used to text the guys that were on the pitching staff that were starting pitchers, like Porcello, for example, David Price, Nate Evaldi, who's having an outstanding postseason. He used to text those guys spikes on, like when they want when he wanted those guys to be like, all right, hey, I know you pitched yesterday, but you got to be available out of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Like Cora loves that stuff. He loves the tactical part of the game, and he hasn't been able to do that for the past few years. So Cora wants to get back to the postseason as a manager, but in terms of the hiring process, I think, as Catillo pointed out, we're still a, a ways away from getting an idea of who it's going to be. Like, if they can speak to Kim Ang, I'm sure they will. I convinced myself earlier, you heard me, Jamie, my new plan is Thad Levine. I love it. Analytical approach. So, shocker that I would like Thad Levine. But I'm telling you, they hit home yeah. runs. They walk. Pitching staff strikes people out. That Pablo Lopez trade is a when a major win for the Twins, it got completely overrated during the season because Arise was like hitting almost 400. It's like, okay, the dude hit 10 home runs and he was 50th in war. Lopez is in the top 10 in war for mm-hmm. starting pitchers. So to me, that combination of Levine and Breslow, because everybody, it seems like across the sport has high hopes for Breslow, thinks that yeah. he did go to Yale. He's a really smart guy, played for the organization. I love the idea, as mm-hmm. Cotillo mentioned, having sort of a guy that, He knows analytics, but he's also a player. So it's different when Craig Breslow would relay a message to, say, Alex Kaur or somebody in the coaching staff than it is when, say, Thad Levine would do it, right? So having that sort of go-between as the number two, I think that would be huge. It's like the best of both worlds. You want the analytical approach, but you also want the player approach. 
And when you think about it too, like Thad Levine has been right there as the number two guy executing deals. So Craig Breslow's not ready for that. He's not ready to do that yet. He has never done that. And as I was mentioning, he's working remotely at times last year, right? So I just think that that sort of duo would be perfect. And I thought Cotillo brought up a really good point. I like Eddie Romero as a guy, and I know that, I I shouldn't say I like him as a guy personally. I don't really know him personally, but I like what he's done for the organization and being able to go through all these different GMs that shows you sort of his pliability, that he can work for different types of guys. A guy that's going to try to win right now, a guy that's going to try to rebuild, a combination of those things. He's done all different stuff. But I do think, like, you need a new set of eyes on this. Yeah. Bring in a new set of eyes, and depending on what Levine tells you, like, what his plan is, like, I want to hear the plan. Like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for this. Like, okay, this is how we're going to get rid of Alex Verdugo. This is what we're doing <laughs> with Yoshida. We don't want to play him left field every day. Uh, we want him to DH. Hey, um, I know this may sound crazy, but... I'm thinking about Raphael Devers. Do we really want him here long term on that big contract? And I'm not saying that that's my personal preference. I'm just saying like, We're I want to hear about. all the, yeah, I want to hear all the ideas for what they, really what I want to hear from Thad Levine because they put together a pitching staff that was number one in Major League Baseball in mm. strikeout rate. I want to find out like, at the very least, if I'm not hiring this guy, what are you guys doing to find all these guys that are striking out people like crazy? So that's certainly stuff that I want to hear from Thad Levine. So I, I mean, I really wish I could be in these meetings. I really do. Although, you know what? I think I would be like, if I had to make this type of decision, I would get too fired up about like, like if I talked to Breslow, I'd be like, that's the fucking guy. If I talked to (laughs) Thad Levine, I'd be like, that's the fucking guy. Like I would have to control myself listening to these guys talk about like, because Red Sox stats tweeted out a couple of videos from Thad Levine. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself like, this guy's a genius. Yep. This is the guy. But and then, so after that, I saw the video like because this was right when it emerged that Thad Levine's a candidate. And I went back and I look at a bunch of the twin stuff. So I'm like, man, I really like sort of how they built their team. He's against stealing bases, though, by the way. He's not. A, oh, he doesn't no. like to steal Don't bases. Don't say that, Brian. You had me until that. No. So he pays attention to the other stuff. Like you can look at run val- base running value, which is measured now. And the twins have been good when it comes to that. They just don't. <laughs> his theory or not his theory his data tells him that stealing bases has not led to more runs and wins so hey right if he says it i trust him in fad we trust i'm already on board but you know brian it's like you gotta sometimes throw a little of that stuff out the window when it comes playoff time you know all of a sudden these teams oh sure talk- sure well sure. Like i mean twins, well i'm sure the- i didn't get yeah. swept but I'm sure Thad Levine isn't going to be like, hey, Duran, never steal, right? Like, that's a weapon. You're going to weaponize his speed. I'm sure he's not going to do that. But I'm just saying, like, in certain instances, it like, you know what? Maybe don't take that gamble there when, say, hypothetically, Trishan Casas is up, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. It sounds like and we definitely need help on the pitching side of the ball. So um, I'm down with that. I think also it's kind of going what he said and what we talked about in the pod. You can't land one of these big fishes, you know, maybe you do split it up. Like two heads are better than one if you're not going to get, you know, that top, top down, which is sad to say for the Red Sox, but maybe it's the next best thing, right? Yeah. Levine and Breslow. I like the Breslow thing. That'd be fun. Yeah. 2024. I wonder though, based on, back to this email, just like, I don't know, I, is it making too big a deal out of the, like, Cora says he aspires to be in the front office, et cetera. Like, is that just something like, I don't know, some guys aren't, wanting to deal with you know it's like i don't know it's yeah, like well, is I he think, staying in his lane kind of thing 
Well, yeah. Look, there, it's no secret that Alex Gore has a lot of power yeah. with the organization, right? I mean, they decide, they moved on from the GM or the president of baseball ops, which was technically Heim's title, and they kept the manager. So if the manager's still here, that means yeah. he has a lot of power. And I'm sure that, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I would imagine that if you're bringing Cora back, which they are, they're yeah. talking to him about the candidates that are coming right. in. Not that he's going to have a say in the decision-making process, but I'm sure they're throwing him names. I mean, like when Kim Ang decided to move on from Miami, since he had a previous relationship with her, or has right. a relationship with her going back to the early 2000s, I'm sure they said, hey, what do you think of Kim Ang? And he probably said, well, I like Kim Ang based on she's got a lot of experience right. as a GM and she's been aggressive. And look, she's been really aggressive. The one thing, and I mentioned, I may have mentioned this with Catillo, the trading resume is not great. Some of the signings are not great. She is aggressive, and she's had some good moves. I'm not saying she hasn't. And she's rebuilt that young pitching staff. Like, Lozardo, yeah. that was an excellent trade. Lozardo's an absolute stud. But sometimes, like, the aggressiveness, the hit right. the hit, hit record is not great. And when I'm looking it's at Levine versus Ang, and I get Levine's technically not the guy, and I look at that trade, I'm like, it's a win for Levine. Won. Yeah, fair and enough. I, I'm, I not, will, like, yeah. I'm not Sorry. trading... For, I'm not trading a starting pitcher that can be in the top three no. year rotation unquestionably in Lopez. And I get it. Miami had pitching depth. I'm not trading that type of prospect for a slap hitter. No disrespect for a guy that hit over 360. He had 10 home runs. I'm yeah. not giving up a top three member of a rotation for a slap hitter. With that type of player, with Lopez, you should be able to get a stud that can give you 30, 35 home runs. That's that's like what should be the currency for a guy of Lopez's stature. Yeah. Yeah, she might come to regret that certainly, but um, I'll give her. Well, I'll give her. A not. I mean, pass. she's gone. She's gone. So <laughs> yeah, I just I don't envy anyone having to work for the Marlins. They seem like the worst run team in baseball, basically. Yeah, well, that is bullshit. How they handled it, like yeah, they're gonna hire somebody they're over. They're tired of it too. It's just like they, yeah. they seem like they're bad news. Yeah, like why would she stay? Oh, so yeah. now you're gonna hire somebody to make my decisions for me like dude screw you i'm out of here so i totally give her credit for that but yeah i mean the red sox should definitely talk to her and see what her plan is because her plan may be the most appealing plan i don't know i'm just Mm -hmm. i look at the resumes and i prefer what the twins have done with thad levine as the number two there than what the marlins did that's just my preference and the marlins had a negative run differential you know that and they somehow made the postseason yeah it's kind of crazy man all right, Jamie, great stuff with the emails. That email address is offthepike at gmail.com. All right, it is time now, Jamie, to get to, to our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. Okay, so with the Patriots game, I like the Patriots to cover the eight and a half. Or excuse me, I like the Bills to cover really? the eight I was going to say, okay. Yeah, I don't know why I said <laughs> I like the, I, <laughs> I like the Bills to cover the eight and a half. They just, the Patriots don't have the horses defensively. Like, the argument for the Patriots to keep this game close was Judon gets after Allen, and Christian Gonzalez plays well against Stephon Diggs. That was the argument that the Patriots could at least keep this thing competitive. They don't have the horses. And we've seen they didn't have the horses in previous years, and now you take out your best defensive player in Judon and your second best defensive player. I would even say one and 1A in Christian Gonzalez. I just don't see how the Patriots can stop the Bills. And even if they have some success running the ball, we chatted with Chris Brown about that. Even if they have some success, I don't see them finishing drives. We haven't seen them finish drives Uh all season long. So I don't think this thing is remotely close. The Bills have a high-powered offense with Allen and Diggs, and they're the far superior team. I feel like this is going to be 
an ugly game where the Patriots lose by at least two touchdowns. I would be shocked if they keep this thing close. Would you? No, I, I, I the exact way I wrote the same thing down where it's just like they, they haven't had enough uh, athleticism defensively against Allen in the past. And they have even less this year. Like I, I was looking at past games that bills would have covered the same spread the last three times in Foxborough. And I would say arguably the bills maybe like one half step worse than they have been the last few years, but the Patriots are obviously fell off a cliff. So that doesn't bode well for them, you know? So no, I, yeah. I agree. I, they, I, the last what four games that they lost, they've been, basically doubled up on the bills have scored 139 points to the Patriots 71. It's like, it's already been a train wreck and obviously this year has been even worse. So it doesn't look good. Yeah. By the way, our pick last week for the Patriots not to cover and the Raiders to cover and the under it actually hit because of the safety. So we hit on that last week and as we trust our parlay did not hit last week because of the Niners and Joe in West Virginia. I mean, it's worse for him than me. Yeah. Joe in West Virginia is out of his survivor pool. I feel worse for him than I do for me. But I do have a three-legger. It's all money line. It's plus mm-hmm. 252 this week. I like the Browns to beat the Colts in Indy. Now, we know that Anthony Richardson is done for the season, which hopefully he sort of learns from this. Like, you can't be taking all these hits. Right. It's sort of like the way that Josh Allen plays, but Josh Allen is, like, never getting hurt. Which is, yeah. I guess last year he dealt with the injury, right? Like, his numbers after the elbow situation, elbow. whatever it was, were not the same. And I know that Deshaun Watson may not play, and it's, what, P.J. Walker, who's their quarterback. The defense, man, they just, they beat the 49ers, and the 49ers, or excuse me, yeah. the Browns, and the four, the 49ers are one of the best teams in the NFL. They didn't even have their starting quarterback against the 49ers. I just feel like Indy, with Gardner Minshew, who flat out stinks, I feel like the Browns roll in this game. Maybe not roll, but they win this thing because I don't yeah. see Indy moving the ball. Like, the Browns' defense right now, and I know they've played some bad offenses. Not last week, and I know they injured some guys like McCaffrey. Trent Williams went down. Debo went down. That's another thing yeah. about playing the Browns. You may get hurt, but I just see the Browns' defense completely owning Minshew. I like the, Seah- the Seahawks at home against Arizona. And okay. Arizona's starting to come back to earth a little bit. Now, we've got this Murray stuff kind of floating out there. I don't buy it, and I've never been a Murray fan to begin with. I like the Seahawks. I like their offense. And then I like Washington, and I hate betting on Sam Howell, but I like Washington on the road against the Giants. I just feel like the Giants stink, and I know that they gave the Bills a game. I think that was more luck than anything else and sort of being familiar with that coaching staff day ball coming from, of course, the Bills organization. So I like Washington to win that game. It's kind of, to me, Washington is obviously going to have a new coach after the season. Ron Rivera at this point can't run his nose and he shows no emotion. Yeah. Bill mentioned this on his pod. You ever see him? Like the guy doesn't show any emotion on the sideline. Riverboat Ron on that Thursday night (laughs) game is not going for anything. Like Riverboat Ron is of the past tense. So even though I don't like Washington's coaching staff, I don't like their quarterback. I dislike the Giants more than I dislike Washington. So that's for plus 252 all money line. Browns over the Colts, Seahawks over Arizona, and Washington over the Giants. What do you think about it? By the way, Watson, I'm looking at it, $230 million guaranteed. It's that's what, yeah. That was the huge hang-up with Lamar in terms of his contract. Like, everybody wants this guarantee. Nobody's getting that type of guarantee. He's... At 226 yards per game, 62.7% completion percentage, and he has a passer rating of 87.8, and you guaranteed him $230 million. If your quarterback was just like a little bit better than Deshaun Watson, and who knows, like offense is down across the NFL this season in general. If your quarterback was just a little bit better than Deshaun Watson, 
that is a Super Bowl level team right. with the defense that they have. And I like Amari Cooper. He's not one of the upper echelon receivers in the NFL. I like him. And I understand they had the Chubb injury as well. But that Browns team has a ton of talent. I just feel like Deshaun Watson, and I know it looks like he's not, who knows if he plays this week or not. He's the thing to me that's holding them back. When you lose your running back like Nick Chubb, okay. the guy you gave $230 million to in guaranteed money, he should be the guy that is sort of stepping up for the organization. And he looks like shit. What do you think's worse, the that contract or Russell Wilson in Denver? Watson, because yeah, longer, I guess. And he's also a massive scumbag. Like you have to factor that <laughs> yeah, into the equation as well, Fair right? Enough. Like, and yeah. think about all the crap they took, and deservingly so, when they traded for him. Now, yeah. in fairness to them, a lot of other teams are trying to trade for him too. Like Atlanta was interested, right. Carolina was interested. There were mm-hmm. other teams that were interested. Banks, they banks, just ended. Right. Be, yeah. So you went through all that. And look, I would have never wanted Deshaun Watson on my football team. I would have never cheered for the guy. But you're not getting any return on that, on that trade. You're getting nothing from Deshaun Watson because he's played like a bottom 10 quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, it's bizarre. I don't know. I remember him on the Texans. He was freaking amazing. I guess it's the he year was out great. of the NFL. Yeah, I thought he was incredible. Like, he had some great games against the Patriots. So that's perplexing. I mean, obviously, Russell Wilson just got old. I don't, I don't know if the deal is with Watson, why he sucks so bad. Wilson's a weirdo, man. That's for sure. Remember he's doing the high knees last year on the plane? (laughs) Strange guy. Strange fashion, strange guy. But uh, in terms of your bet, Brian, I think it's pretty good. The only thing I'd say is you're telling me some serious warning signs about your Washington, New York, but that's a stay away, man. It's like, you're like, I don't like this guy's coaching staff. I don't like this team. It's like, well, pick a different game. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I got too greedy. I don't want to. Maybe I should retire from betting on Washington because the last time I bet (laughs) on Washington, was the Thursday night game. And you're not supposed to bet on Thursday right. night games, and I did, and it was like Justin Fields' best game ever in the NFL. <laughs> yeah, and it was the game. That's the thing, unpredictable. Yeah, and it was the game, too, where, if you remember, enemy ran the ball for the last time in the game on a design run with nine minutes left in the first quarter, and they never ran it again. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I mean, at some point in the fourth quarter, I get it. You're down by a ton of points, but it, it was a wild game in terms of the play calling. All right, Jamie, before we go, I wanted to get to this real quick. So... Mike Giardi had an article up at Boston Sports Journal, and here's a quote from the story. Plenty of folks in the upper reaches of the building would rather have more losses than a win or two that could cost draft position. In fact, some are already talking about next year. That's what one in five will do for you. Okay, to my point on this is this shouldn't shouldn't be any sort of surprise. This is one of, if not the worst team in the NFL. I mean, really, if Carolina has a win, you would say the Patriots are the worst team in the league because the Patriots have the second worst point differential. I guess you could throw the Giants into the conversation as well. But the problem is, or the point is, they're in the family photo of the worst teams in the NFL. I mean, who else is in the photo? The Giants are in the photo. Carolina's in the photo. The Bears are in the photo. The Patriots are in the photo. Yeah, Yeah, the Broncos. I mean, that's probably the five teams, right? Even Minnesota, who has these injuries, and they're not winning games, but Minnesota's a much better team than the Patriots are. Yeah. yeah. It, well, I guess not right now because of the injury. So he's but on yeah. the roster, yeah. Yeah, they have enough firepower. Kirk's throwing for like 300 yards left and right. I mean, their offense. So, I mean, those are probably the five worst teams in the NFL. I may be forgetting somebody, but you get the point. So yeah. this should be what the organization is cheering for. At this point, you have to realize, like, there have been so many games, or at least a few, where the Cowboys game, the Saints, you're not in it. You're not in it at all, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like, hey, 
You go back to the Jets last season and you say, you know what? If they just didn't have Zach Wilson and they had a different quarterback, okay. That roster is loaded. Like, I look at the division right now. That's where my point is. The Patriots have nothing like that in terms of their roster. They don't have good receivers. They don't have a good offensive line. They have good personnel, somewhat on the defensive end, but the two best players are hurt as we continue to go over that. But it's not like, oh, it's not the same level of defensive personnel that, say, Cleveland has or that San Francisco has, where they have the reigning defending defensive player of the year, and Warner, who's the best linebacker in the NFL, right? The Patriots have good personnel, but it's not like top five defensive Mm -hmm. personnel in the NFL. Even in their own division, the Jets have superior personnel. And when you look at this division, the Jets are eventually, next season, going to get Aaron Rodgers back, although he keeps hinting at the fact that he could be back this year. We'll see if that happens. But so you have Rodgers coming back with that loaded Jets team. Garrett Wilson is a legit bona fide number one option. The Bills are the Bills. We talked about that and how miserable this game is going to be on Sunday. And Miami's loaded now with Tyreek Hill and with Jalen Waddle. You're clearly the worst team in the division. Just embrace it. I mean, you should be embracing the rebuild, embracing getting all the draft picks you possibly can, which brings me to the fact that I am now, and I alluded to this with Cotillo, I'm starting to fall in love with Drake May. I know Caleb Williams is the guy that everybody wants, although it seems like he wants ownership of a team. Which you can't do, <laughs> which is crazy. just kind of yeah. crazy. It's funny to me that story comes out after his worst game of his career. Yeah. Like, weird timing on that. But anyway, my point being, Drake May is the guy to watch. Drake May is an absolute stud, can throw the ball off platform, on the move. He's athletic. He can run the football. His brother, Luke May, hit like one of the huge shots in college basketball for North Carolina. So you get the the connection there in terms of the Tar Heels. But Man, I just, I really like watching. Now, I like Penix, too. I mentioned that mm-hmm. maybe last week on the pod. Yeah. Penix played really well against Oregon. My only problem with Penix is I think he's like 40, okay? So I think he's, <laughs> the guy is old. I mean, he was at yeah. Indiana. He dealt with injuries. But man, Drake, man, I know he's number two on everybody's board. So it's going to be tough to get there. That's the guy I want. I'm all in on Drake May now. I mean, you say it's tough to get there. I don't, I don't know why why it should be tough to get there. Just just keep sucking. I don't know. Like you're saying, it's like it's cra- higher up in the organization. To me, that means the crafts, right? Jonathan Robert. And it's like, I, that's well, why, the, I mean, at least close to them, right? Yeah. Well, the Fields thing worries me, Jamie. How long is Fields going to yeah. be out? Because Fields... It might not even hurt them if he's out, though. I Well, they got that kid that is thrown like in college at D2 through like a million. His dad was yeah. like an arm wrestler or something. He threw like a million touchdowns for a million yards. But I actually thought Fields, I mean, I watched him take yeah. my money away in the Washington game. Like he was starting to play better. I thought Fields looked a lot better and his legs can be at least a weapon. And that was the game where they threw it up to DJ Moore like crazy. It's like, oh, yeah, this is why we traded yeah. for DJ Moore. So I think the Bears and especially considering their schedule is not as difficult as the Patriots schedule in terms of just mm-hmm. the division they play in, right? Now, I know you have Detroit in that division, but other than that, it's not sort of the division that the Patriots have to deal with. So you want Fields to play because Fields could get more wins, and then you have to hope that Murray, and it feels like he's on his way back. Now, like I said, I, I don't believe he's going to play this week, but he's on his way back. If yeah. Murray plays, Arizona could get some wins here. Carolina is the only team that doesn't have a win. That's kind of a scary thing because they're going to continue to lose games, especially now if Bryce Young were to be injured, they would have a much better shot at winning games because Dalton is just the far superior player right now to Bryce Young. So to your point, like, yeah, they do have a really good chance to get that number two spot. Now, the question is when they play some of these other teams that have not been particularly great, the Giants, Washington, who I'm banking on this. I still, and now I regret this already, Washington, those type of teams There are winnable games. 
But the way that you make those even less winnable, next week, let's go. Kendrick Bourne, see ya. Uche, see ya. Send all your good players out. Yeah. What do you think you could get from Mac? Vending machine? You get, yeah, conditional six round pick if he makes five pro bowls. Kicking (laughs) kicking tees? Oh, who knows with him, man? Yeah. It's tough. He'll probably be on the Raiders. If Josh keeps his job, he'll probably be on the Raiders. Josh, I, I I told you off the pod that I was watching some highlights from his rookie year with McDaniels, and he definitely got the most out of Mac. So maybe a reunion would be good. It seems like Jimmy is not going to work out in Vegas. Can you imagine if Josh has three quarterbacks in three years? <laughs> that wouldn't be great. Wouldn't be great. But I don't know. It just seems like Garoppolo. He seems kind of washed. Like you, you realize maybe it was that uh, San Francisco talent all around that made him like passable. Yeah, well, Hoyer ripped up the Patriots, so that's another reason for optimism. Well, for the Patriots that's another thing in games. terms of in terms of winnable games. Like, well, so far we've lost the winnable games, so no reason to think otherwise. Yeah, and I mentioned on the pod, I can't remember who this is with, but Popovich is rejuvenated. I'm not saying Bill should be the one that's rejuvenated, but that organization can now bounce yeah. back because they have Victor Wembanyama. Like, it got really bad for the Spurs. They were bad for four years. They were playing yeah. irrelevant games because. The trade they made with Kawhi was just idiotic. And now I understand, like, the, I'm not, I don't want to get into like the bad blood between Kawhi and the organization. That's a complete digression. But the point being, they tried to win at that point with DeMar DeRozan. This is where I think it's similar to the Patriots, where they said, hey, DeMar DeRozan was like the best player coming back. They didn't even get like their young studs. They didn't get Siakam, right? Like Siakam yeah. should have been in that deal. And so they get back just basically DeMar DeRozan. They get Jakob Pertl, who ironically is now back on the Raptors because they were trying to stay relevant. And that's what I feel like the Patriots have been doing. They've been trying to stay relevant. And eventually the bottom falls out. The bottom fell out for the Spurs and it ended up being a good thing. I think the bottom can fall out for the Patriots here. Or I shouldn't say I feel like it already has. (laughs) The Patriots can be rewarded and Drake May could be throwing touchdown passes next year for the Patriots. Now, we don't know who he's going to be throwing those touchdown passes to. We'll have to find a receiver. They say we got a tie cap room the next two years. So, yeah, you get a stud quarterback, May, or I want Williams, but May too. And then, yeah, you get a – we have all this cash. That sounds like next year, if this goes correctly, this tank, it, we could be relevant again next year. Well, hey, let me be clear too. Like, I want Caleb Williams too, but I'm saying, like, okay. number one, it's tough to get to number one, right? But if you get to number two or number three, I really want Drake May. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm like, Drake May is just – And I know he came into the season, like, highly regarded. He was the number two guy the whole time, but – I don't think it's close between like Drake May and Penix or Drake May and Sanders or Drake May and yours. Watching Drake May, and I've seen him now play the last two weeks, way better than any of those guys. Like mm-hmm. it's not even close. Drake May, if it was last year, he would have been the number one pick in the draft. Well, it was all already a stupid pick. I guess CJ Stroud should have gone number right. one. Right. But the fact that they picked Bryce Young, and I do believe that Drake May would have got picked over CJ Stroud. We'll see if that ages well in terms of if May's a better NFL quarterback mm. because Stroud has been outstanding. But I'm all in on Drake May. I'm going to, and look, I don't want to say they're a rival because Syracuse just got to the ACC a couple of years ago. But I'm going to start buying some North Carolina gear, Drake May shirts, and get ready for the draft, man. That's where I'm at. And in the meantime, watch the Celtics and the Bruins. Go C's, go B's. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. See you, Ryan. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617 396 7172. 617 396 7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.